Hey, hey, church, how we doing? What a blessing to be together. I am excited for what we're going to do tonight. We are continuing our journey through the book of Acts. If you missed our opening last week, I'd encourage you to jump online on YouTube or the podcast to give that a listen. We kind of walked through some introductory thoughts and larger themes in the book of Acts. Uh, but, but really, from this point out, like we just... We just get to gnaw on this book, and I'm just stoked for it. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I'm going to share a weird little thought I had this week. You know, I got, to, I got to get out, and I get to get out every now and again and do just discipleship meetings with different folk in our church. And this last week, I got to sit with a guy in our church and, 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 and the way we divide up our time usually is you know, we spend some time catching up and chatting, and then we spend some time praying over each other, and then we spend some time studying the scripture. And, and this go-around just so happened that this cat got me on one of my soapboxes. I don't know what you're thinking, like, oh, like what, what theological question did he ask you? No, he asked me about the Aliens franchise. And, and I know what you're thinking. I get it. I would talk a long time about the Aliens franchise also, because they're so good, Right? Uh, anyway, so that for the next 40 minutes, oh, I'm just kidding, but, but, but that is what happened. Was he, he got me talking about these movies, and if you know me, you know that I love scary movies and I love sci-fi movies. That's like my two go-tos, and so when you mix them together, there's only like, there's not many of those, right? But, but Aliens is there. It's in my wheelhouse, and he, he got me talking about this, and I talked and talked and talked and talked because I love those movies so much, and then I had this moment where I thought, oh, we're here to study the Bible, uh, and so we switched over, and I realized, oh, we only have like 20 minutes of our time left. And so we got to study the scripture for 20 minutes after talking about xenomorphs and blood and guts and machine guns and spaceships for, 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 for way too long. And I know what you're thinking, wow, you're a really bad pastor. And, and I get it, right? But, but, but here's the thing with that. And what we're going to talk about this tonight. When you, when you like something, when something gives you joy— you talk about it. And no one has to convince you to talk about the things that give you joy. It doesn't matter how introverted you are. It doesn't matter how extroverted you are. It doesn't, it doesn't matter socially or friend circle. When you're sitting with someone and they bring up something that brings you joy, and they go, man, you know what I love? This thing. And you go, I love that thing. And you just sit and talk about it. It's, it's this natural outpouring. It's this natural expression of what it means to be human, to have passion. We're going to see that tonight in this text. We're in, we're in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6, we read this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. What a text. Mm, pray with me. Father, this evening as we, as we take a few minutes to discuss your word, as we, as we take a few minutes to sit and just reflect on what's being said here, what's being taught here, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be present, that you would be our discipler, that you would do ministry in our hearts, that you would convict us and prick our hearts where there is sin, where there's idolatry, where there needs to be challenge that you would remind us of things that just in our, in our frailty and our humanity that we've forgotten. And Lord, we ask that you would open our ears and our eyes, that we would be able to receive from you and that you would teach us new things about your person. We love you, Jesus. So we pray these things humbly and expectantly in your name. Amen. So what are we going to do with this story this evening? What I'd like to do is I want to work back through this text. I'm going to point out, I'm going to spend a good amount of time actually pointing out a couple of the historical and cultural pieces that kind of help contextualize this text. I think that'll help give us some clear eyes on, on what Jesus is specifically teaching and promising in this text. And that's going to lead us to really just one of the most plain truths of the entire New Testament. Uh, and that's this idea of eschatological tension. And I know you're thinking, ah, yes, eschatological tension. I, that is a plain truth in the New Testament. I think of that term often. Uh, but, but we'll get there. We'll spend a little bit of time talking about this idea, what it means, and really how it fuels the mission, the purpose of the church. And we're going to end our time with Paul's teaching to the church in Thessalonica and in time of communion. Sound good? Rock and roll. So, so in the plainest sense, the actual story here, right, like, like what actually happens here is, is really simple. Jesus calls his followers to himself one last time. Remember, we're, we're in this book that represents kind of a sequel to the Gospels. Acts picks up directly where Luke picks off. In fact, uh, this, these first two texts we've been in, these are kind of a summary of Luke 24 that, that kind of ends out the Gospel of Luke. We're, we're, we're kind of just doing this transition. This is almost like when the sequel started, if it did the last time on and went through like the little montage of scenes you missed. That's what we're working our way through right now in the beginning of Acts. And so Jesus's ministry, Jesus has had his ministry. He's gone. He's taught. He's done miracles. He's died an unjust death. He's rose from the dead by the power of God. And according to our text last week, he spent 40 days hanging out with his followers, teaching, meeting with them, performing signs. And this, our text today, picks up at the last time that Jesus calls his followers together. And so he calls them together. They come and they hang out. They ask him this question, like, is, is now the time? Is the kingdom going to, is it all going to go down now? And Jesus basically says, wrong question. Don't even worry about it. Wait for the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to go be my witnesses. And before they have time to ask any other questions, he just starts, like, getting vacuum cleanered up away from them, up into the sky. And they're all just standing there staring at him going, this is, this is wild. 
And as they're staring up at the clouds while Jesus is, is going away from them, two angels appear next to him and just kind of kind of do this whole, like, hey, what are you guys looking at? There's nothing there. Uh, and, and, and then tell them this idea, hey, Jesus has returned to heaven. But don't worry, he'll come back in the same way you saw him go. And that's, that's really the whole story, right? This whole idea is just Jesus is finishing out his earthly ministry. He's rose from the dead. So he gives one last piece of instruction and then he jets, he leaves and he's coming back. And then we're just kind of left in this scene with these followers of Jesus standing on a mountain, just kind of looking flabbergasted and Jesus is gone. You can read about different perspectives on the same story in the end of three of the four Gospels. If you, if you jump into Matthew 28 or Mark 16 or Luke 24, they, they retell the same scene from slightly different perspectives, but it's all the same story. Jesus has accomplished his ministry here on earth, and he returns to heaven returns to the Father from which he came, and he is ruling at the right hand of the Father, and we have, we're left, the church is left with this promise that he will be back, and I will resist the urge for an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression there, because I care about you guys too much to make you suffer that, but you get what I'm saying. The story here is relatively straightforward, outside of the fact that it's insane, uh, and it's this supernatural miracle. None of us have ever seen anything like that, right? The actual narrative here is relatively simple. Now, there's a couple things we really need to understand in this text if we're really going to get where we need this evening. And the first one is this. It's this apostles, their question. You see this, right? They, the thing starts out, they, they gather unto him. Jesus has been hanging out in his perfected, resurrected body with his followers for more than a month at this point. He calls them to him, and the apostles ask him this question. Are you now going to restore the kingdom? It says, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, if you were with us a couple years ago when we went through the Gospel of Mark, you may remember this, and, and, and you may not, it's fine. But, but this question is just loaded, just loaded with meaning and with weight in this cultural context. If, if you've done a deep dive study of any of the Gospels, but really, Mark really puts this on display, Jesus' messianic ministry was so buck wild to everyone around him because he absolutely blew all the messianic expectations out of the water. Almost, almost purposefully so. He took the different expectations that, that, that God's people had of what messianic ministry would look like, and he just, he just destroyed them. So the thing you have to understand is that Israel in this day, the Jewish people, because Israel's not functioning as a nation, right? The Jewish people, they are just loaded with bear with this messianic expectation. And here's what that means. If you jump way back in your Old Testament, back to 2 Samuel 7, you'll find this really interesting text where God the Father makes a covenant with King David. If you recall... The nation of Israel is not a normal nation. It didn't arise out of just power play or politics. The nation of Israel, the, the ancient nation of Israel in the Old Testament, arose because God spoke it into existence. God supernaturally 
formed this nation and protected and preserved and established this nation. I say this nation meaning ancient Israel. And, 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 and there really is something about that unique place that Israel had in human history set up by God that, that really kind of comes together in this text in 2 Samuel. I'm going to read you just a little chunk of it. You can actually go read the whole chapter if you want. It's really interesting. But, but God, through a prophet, makes a covenant, makes a promise with King David, and he says this. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of man, with the stripes of the son of men. But when my steadfast love will not depart from him as it did from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You see, God promised David that he would establish his kingdom and his throne forever. Now this sounds amazing. And by the way, the nation of Israel took this to heart. God may punish them. God may give them the just due of their sin. God may get angry when they turn away. But when it comes down to it, God has promised that Israel will be around forever. So, so even though the bad guys may win sometimes, God will never allow Israel to fall. He'll never let them be destroyed. And in fact, this was one of the things that was brought against against the prophets. When the prophets came to minister to the kings and said, you guys are in terrible sin. God is going to destroy this nation. They said, no, no, no. Israel can't be destroyed. God promised that Israel would stand forever. So we're good. Uh, except that it didn't actually go down that way. In fact, just two generations after David, when David's grandson took the throne, things began to fall apart. Israel descended into this bloody, awful civil war, and the nation was split into two sovereign nations that were never reunited. And over the course of the, the tens of generations after that, Israel had some times of power and Israel had some times of weakness, but consistently both Judah and Israel lost territory and lost people. These nations became increasingly more impoverished and increasingly more dependent on others. They never again obtained the splendor of, of the reigns of David and Solomon. Never again. And just several hundred years after this actual remark, this promise that God makes, first the northern nation of Israel and then the southern nation of Judah are completely and utterly destroyed. And, and the Babylonians come in and they conquer, they sack Jerusalem and the walls are broken down and the temple is burned and the holy things are taken and desecrated and the Ark of the Covenant is taken away and the holy curtain is torn down and the temple was knocked over and, and the palace was knocked over and the throne of David was destroyed. 
And from that point on, Israel functions in subjugation as slaves. They, they live, the only throne in Jerusalem is the throne of whatever governor is, is, is in control because of whatever, whatever empire is popular in the moment. And out of this, out of this, arises this messianic hope where God's people look upon a completely and utterly destroyed Israel and they go, but God, but God, you promised. You promised. You promised this throne would be established forever. How can this happen? And they began to rely on this idea as they looked at their scriptures and they, they read the stories in Joshua and Judges and they said, oh, when, when God's people function in sin and God punishes them, then, then he anoints a leader and he raises up a leader who, who raises up an army and the people move in repentance and they throw off their oppressors and God restores them. So what happened to the whole book of Judges, that must be what God is going to do now. This is actually the history of the Pharisees. And here Jesus he gets in fights, theological fights with the Pharisees a lot. The Pharisaical party, that theological interpretation, came from this idea that Israel had to show enough repentance through their holy living and their obedience to the law that God would finally relent of his wrath and raise up a new Messiah that they might overthrow their Roman oppressors and be a nation again. This, this kind of militaristic messianic hope was the norm in Jesus' day. This was the expectation that everyone had for the Messiah. So when Jesus shows up on the scene and starts, starts claiming these titles, I am the son of man, and starts doing these miracles and starts teaching these things, and basically just, just winking and nodding at everyone in the nation going, yeah, I'm totally the Messiah, that had so much weight built into it. The Messiah was a military leader. The Messiah, the term, literally means anointed king, anointed one. It's used of, of all of these special leaders in Israel's history. David was a Messiah, an anointed one. So, so when, when Jesus starts to, to take on this title, see, he is he's changing the whole game. He's changing the whole definition of Messiah and the whole definition of messianic ministry. You see, Jesus was absolutely going to topple a kingdom, but it was not the kingdom that his people were expecting. They were ready for him to raise up arms and raise up an army and cast off their Roman oppressors, but Jesus had his sights on something much bigger than Rome. Jesus came to this earth to yank Satan and death off of their respective thrones and win away for God's people to experience life and freedom and eternity in him. Now, he told his followers this bluntly, by the way, especially near the, near the end of his ministry after, after Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. He just gets right down to it and says, the Messiah is not what you think it is. I'm actually going to be killed by Rome. I'm not going to raise up an army. Rome's not going anywhere. They're actually going to kill me. But I'm going to raise from the dead, and then you'll see what the Messiah really is. 
He couldn't have said it more clearly, but his people are so entrenched, so many generations entrenched into this idea of the Messiah as this militaristic victor to to make them a nation again and restore their honor and restore their culture that they they just can't wrap their heads or their hearts around this message. It's 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 why Peter himself rebukes Jesus when Jesus says that he's going to be crucified. He goes, there's no way that's how this is going to go down. So even even when Jesus' words come true and he raises from the dead, right? Jesus has literally risen from the dead. They, They watched him tortured to death brutally. And he has risen. And still, the first place they go with Jesus is, okay, all right. You got this God power. I get it. I get it. So uh, now, now, now we're going to overthrow Rome? Is that what's happening? Was that this whole thing was the lead up to like army time now? Like, because I'm, I'm down. And, and I cannot, I can't overstate this, right? The apostles are standing in the presence of the resurrected Jesus and they still don't know <laughs> They still have not wrapped their heads around this. They're still looking for God's promise to David to be fulfilled by an earthly Israel in the here and now. The reality is that God's promise to David had almost nothing to do with Israel as a nation. God's promise to David was the same promise he's been making since Genesis 3. I will fix this. I will fix what sin has broken. The promise to David was that David's line would provide an eternal king who would reign in this world. Beloved, this is the promise of heaven. God promised David heaven. God's king reigning over God's people forever. This is the promise. This is the promise that God made then. This is the, God, the promise that, that God is still in the process of working out right now, which is why Jesus answers the apostles' question the way he does. He basically tells them, look, if you're, if you're looking for an earthly kingdom to be established here, uh, you're missing the point. You just, you just don't get to know that. You don't get to know is the kingdom, is it now, now, now we're going to overthrow Rome? And Jesus just says, look, take that, like, toss that question out. You don't know, I don't know. There's no point in talking about that. And instead, instead, Jesus immediately pushes his followers to these two promises. You see this? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Two promises. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. I love how Jesus just pivots his followers from just being, just completely missing the point to actually the ministry he has for them. Now, now, now this is not like, this is not a rally the troops moment the way the apostles think it is. This is a go tell it on the mountain moment. Right? This is not about get out your swords. This is about get out there and bear witness. So the two promises here, 
the power of the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witness. Now, now listen, we're going to talk a ton about the power of the Holy Spirit as we go through Acts. In just a couple weeks, we're going to get to the story of Pentecost, and, and we're going to get to read this story about the Spirit anointing his church and moving in power. And my hope is that seeing the way the Holy Spirit moved through the church in the first few decades after Christ rose from the dead will just, will just make us uncomfortable and make for some really good conversations. My, my hope is that we'll get there and we'll have to chew on some stuff that's probably just out of our comfort zone as modern Western Christians, and that'll be good. But what I want you to hear about this for our purposes today is this. The apostles, and by way of succession, the church, right? The church had every single piece of evidence in front of them about what Jesus was doing. They had the scriptures. They had the promise and covenants of God. They had the teachings of Jesus where he said, this is literally what will happen. I'll die and then I'll rise again. And that's how this is going to work. They had the power and authority of Jesus's miracles. They had the evidence of Jesus himself standing in front of them. They had everything and they still couldn't connect the dots. They were still missing something. The thing they were missing is the Holy Spirit. Because the reality is, they didn't have eyes to see and they didn't have ears to hear. They needed God himself to come and, and, and give the actual meaning to these words. And to actually connect the dots for them. And to actually draw them to real faith. The difference, the difference between Peter in the end of Luke and Peter post-Pentecost. Oh my goodness. You would, not, you would assume that the two different authors are writing about this man because he's so different. I mean, Peter in the end of Luke is denying Christ and then weeping when he looks him in the eye and being too cowardly to stand up for his Savior and to, to speak out and speak up in any way. Peter, pre-Holy Spirit, is sitting here going, okay, you resurrected, cool, I'm into that. So now, do we get to go kill Romans or what? Peter with the Holy Spirit, takes, takes the entirety of the story of Scripture and strings together the promises of God from creation to redemption and calls 3,000 people to salvation through the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit is necessary. You cannot, you, you are not smart enough to think your way into this. It takes the mercy, the presence, the goodness of our God to connect the dots for us. So he promises the power of the Spirit. And then he promises that you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. If you read the story in Matthew 28, he says you'll go and make disciples. But here, Luke emphasizes this idea of witnesses. You will be my witnesses. And what is a witness. Witness is someone who has first-hand experience. Jesus' followers have experienced him. They're not just reading promises in a book, but they, they have experienced his person and the truth of his promises. And when the Spirit comes upon them in power, all these things are going to click. All these things are going to come together. I mean, they are literally hanging out with a guy who was crucified a little more than a month ago. 
In this moment and in this promise, Jesus is not only defining the entire rest of the book of Acts, but, but he's really defining the purpose of his church. The church is empowered by God to accomplish God's mission of bearing witness, declaring the gospel, making the gospel visible. One theologian was commenting on this text and he said, the church does not go on mission. The church does not live missionally. Rather, the church is a mission. And that mission is to bear witness to the Christ, which raises a really important question. What are they, and then by connection us, what are they actually bearing witness to? Right? Like, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. They have not connected the dots. What are they bearing witness to? They, they, they need understanding, which is why what happens next is so vital. This, this scene plays out perfectly. Jesus' followers, they've been hanging out with him for 40 days up to this point. They're, they're ready for him to raise the alarm, to get the army ready to overthrow Rome. Instead, he says, no, it doesn't work like that. Don't, don't worry about the timing. Just go out in the power of God and bear witness to the whole world. And right when he says that, he just floats away. Like literally. Just, I don't know if that sounded, I don't know if there was a Jetson sound effect, but like that's how that works out in my brain. He, he literally ascends into heaven and you have this group of people just standing there flabbergasted, just staring at the sky going, well, that was, that was not what I thought would happen next. That's wild. And, and in this moment, these two angels manifest and give this, this amazing rebuke where you can just imagine the scene of these people just kind of staring up at the sky like, huh, I mean, it's been 40 days. I kind of figured at the 40-day mark, he's probably just going to hang with us. But he is definitely up there. And then these angels are kind of sitting there looking at him like, what are you guys looking at? What are you looking at? He's gone. And look what they say. He's gone. He's gone to heaven. And he will come back the same way you saw him go. Why are you looking up there? Why are you focusing on that? He just gave you a mission. Why are you staring up at the sky? You know what's next. You're going to receive the power of the Spirit, and you're going to go and bear witnesses. He's gone to heaven, and he's coming back just like, just like he said he would. I, I, I love this. Jesus leaves them with these, these last instructions. Wait for the Spirit. Be my witness. And his leaving ends with this promise that he'll be back because beloved of Jesus. And this is where we've got to bring this thing together tonight. That is what we're witnessing. Not just the truth of who Jesus is, God. Not just the truth of what Jesus did. He died and rose again that, that we might have eternal connection to God. But this amazing truth that he has promised, he will return. Because the promise of God to David still stands. God will establish his king and his kingdom here on earth for eternity. 
Beloved, Jesus is that king. And he will come back and he will reign. This amazing promise is is absolute, just gasoline on the fire that is the church. As Acts progresses, we're going to see that this, this eschatological promise, this promise of the end, promise of the end times, Christ will come back, he'll establish his kingdom. This eschatological promise is key to the witness that the apostles bear to Jesus. Jesus is God. He made a way for us to move from death to life. And he's coming back and his kingdom will be forever. You can be a part of this kingdom. It is not just an eschatological promise. It's an eschatological hope that Christ will return and restore all things. And you and I can be a part of that kingdom. This is inherent, inherent to the witness we bear as followers. Beloved of Jesus, this is what we're proclaiming when we bear witness. We've experienced Jesus. We know who he is. We've experienced what he's done. We are sure of his promised return. This oozes from the church when we proclaim the message to the world. This is the promise. Jesus is coming back. Let, let, me, let me say that again for us. Jesus is coming back. Every wrong in this world will be righted. Every injustice will be, will be made new. Every sin will be atoned. Every evil will be snuffed. Every bit of suffering will go away. Jesus is coming back. The question that arises for us, beloved, in this space right now, is simply this. Does that promise, does that truth actually fill you with joy? You see, the the apostles may not have gotten it immediately, but they definitely got it when the Spirit came. And as as we go through this book, you're going to see this amazing thing where these apostles in this church marches forward in just this absolute assured joy of Christ's declaration of who he is and his finished work and his promised return. And that assured joy sparks the apostles and the church to insane lengths. These apostles, these men, are going to die terrible deaths. When I say terrible deaths, I mean atrocious deaths. I'm not going to like just brutally go down the list because you have access to Google. But the thing you need to know is that they walk joyfully into this life. They joyfully receive that loss and that persecution and that suffering because they're so sure, so sure that Jesus is who he says he was that he did what they saw him do, and that his promise to return is true. It absolutely, absolutely fueled the church. They don't get to know when the kingdom is actually coming. No one does. They just have to concern themselves with bearing witness. But one thing they know is that the kingdom is coming. And beloved, you and I, are witnesses to the same fact. The kingdom is coming. Jesus will return. 
the eschatological hope of Jesus' return inspires joy in the people of Jesus. So as we end this out, we really just have, we just have to ask this honestly. Does the actual imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ fill you with joy and hope? Honestly, do you long for his return? And guys, I want, I, want, I want to invite us, like we have to be honest here. The ultimate litmus test of the joy of the promised return of Jesus, how much that actually strikes us, the ultimate litmus test of that is purely and simply how often we talk about it. How much do we actually witness this? How much do we actually proclaim this? I said it at the beginning, and it's like, it's silly, and we know it's true, but we talk about the things that bring us joy. We just do. We just do. Sit me down in a coffee shop and ask me about the lore of the aliens universe. You distract me from whatever the heck we're there to do. Because that brings me joy. It's fun to me. I love it. So, as much as this is a ludicrous connection, it, it, it's, worth, it's worth reflecting on. Does the, does the eminent return of our sweet Jesus bring you joy? Do you, do you long for his presence? Or, and I, and I want to be clear when I say this, there is no condemnation in what I'm saying right now. Are our lives, maybe in this present world, just pleasant enough that the return of Jesus just doesn't carry the same joy bomb that it did for the early church? Maybe you and I just, we just have it pretty good. And, and the blessings that we've received in this life can just make it a little bit harder to actually be excited about what Jesus has promised. Because if that's you, please don't hear me beating you up. You don't have to feel guilty. Doesn't mean that Jesus is mad at you. Doesn't mean you're terrible. Honestly, what it means is you don't have clear eyes on how amazing the promise of our Jesus actually is. You just don't. If you're not stoked on it, if it doesn't actually elicit emotional response in you, if it doesn't actually grab a hold of your heart and actually produce longing and joy, not that you're terrible. So you don't have clear eyes on the promise you've been given. You're like my little girl. When I'm getting ready to cook a dinner and I've been watching a whole bunch of cooking videos and it's my day off and I'm like, girl, we're doing, we are doing gourmet tonight. And she's like, sick, I'd really rather have chicken nuggets. That's just how kids are sometimes, right? Sometimes we just look at this world and this life and these blessings. We look at all these amazing things like comforts and family and love and spouses and friendships and fulfilling careers and comfy houses and beautiful fall days with fire pits in our backyard. And we just go, man, this really is just great. Jesus, I love you, but man, you can come back tomorrow. Like it's all good. I am enjoying it right now. Doesn't mean you're terrible. Just means you're a five-year-old that would rather have chicken nuggets than filet mignon. Just means you don't have eyes on the reality of what you're saying. 
Guys, Jesus' return is the best possible thing that can happen. He makes all things new. He will destroy all evil. He will get rid of all death. Hear that. Jesus will banish death. Revelation says he will take death itself and cast it into Hades. All suffering, all pain, all injustice, all that will remain in this world is all that is good. Love, peace, joy. What a God we serve. What a king, what a promise. Beloved, Jesus is coming back. That is a promise. That's a reality that if you are in Christ, you will literally experience on this earth. You and I will be a part of that. What a God we serve. What a gospel we proclaim. What a message to which we bear witness. So here's what I'm going to do because I've gone over. I'm going to read a text. I'm going to ask Chris to come back up here. I'm just going to end with this text. And here's what I'd like you to do. Let me read this over. You can look it up if you want. It's 1 Thessalonians 4. But let, let me read this over you. I want you to let these words wash over you. And I want to invite you just to come to a place of prayer. Let this song be sung over you. Let these next few moments... Let your heart just be with Jesus. And, and guys, let's just, let's just take a moment to actually reflect on the imminent return of our Jesus, our sweet Jesus, our Lord who has done so much on our behalf, our Lord who is coming back and will make all things new, our Lord who will, who will write, can, can I say Every wrong, everyone, every injustice, every hurt, every dirty thing that's ever been done to you and you've ever done, all of it, he's coming back for that. So let me read this text and we'll spend a few minutes in prayer and that'll be how we end our time. First Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 13 says this. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Beloved, take a few minutes to be with Jesus.